this morning, uh, this morning we're in the second week of our sermon series, How to Be Happy. And we're looking at, the, at this through the book of Philippians. And, and this morning we'll be looking at Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 30. How to be happy. Now yesterday, I was curious, and so I googled those four words. How to be happy. I was curious about what people said, but I was also amazed at the number of results that came back. How many, how many results do you think came back in 0.4 seconds? How many results came back about how to be happy, do you think? 200 million? Five? <laughs> there were 6,560,000,000 results for saying how to be happy. That's getting close to one hit for every man, woman, and child on the planet. That is insane. And a billion, over a billion of those, almost 1.2 billion of those were videos. If you click on the video tab, 1.2 billion videos about how to be happy. That is an incredible number. And it just seems excessive. It seems excessive, but it tells us something, doesn't it? We really want to be happy. Like people really want to be happy. So much so that six and a half billion people thought it would be a good idea to say something about how to be happy. And the advice from those sites, I clicked on a few of them. I mean, they were all over the map. It was like, eat better, sleep more, work less get a massage, go on vacation. Some of those obvious things, you know, think happy thoughts, do more things you enjoy. They're not bad ideas, right? They're not bad ideas. But judging by today's passage in Philippians chapter 1, I think Paul would, if he wrote one of those blog posts, he would simply say this. Matthew six thirty three. You want to be happy? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That's how to be happy. That's it. I'm not sure that that would be the number one hit on Google, but this is what Paul would tell us about how to be happy. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. But what does it mean to seek God's kingdom first? That's a massive question. right? It's not just he's like, oh yeah, I'll do that. You know, I can, I can you know, sleep more. But how does like seek God's kingdom first? Well, first and foremost, what it means to seek God's kingdom first is that it means to embrace the king. Embrace the king of that kingdom. It means you recognize that even though we were in rebellion against this king, Jesus came for us. And he did what was necessary to save us out of the kingdom that we were in, the kingdom of sin and death and darkness. He saved us out of that kingdom by dying in our place and rising again. That is the first step in putting the kingdom first, is embracing this new king. Turning from our rebellion and accepting his offer of mercy. In doing this, he makes us a part of his kingdom and we become citizens of heaven. 
We become citizens of heaven and representatives of him. And so putting his kingdom first means that we live like our king. We represent our king. It means that because we have seen how much our king first loves us, that we respond by loving God with all that we are and all that we have and loving our neighbor. That we work for our neighbor's good spiritually, physically, mentally, emotionally. We work for their good in all facets of life. It also means that because we've seen how generous God has been to us, how generous our king has been to us, that we are generous with our time, with our talents. We're generous with our money to, to see the good news of the kingdom made known. To put it simply, it means that we both show and share the love of Jesus. We show and share the love of our king. And we put his kingdom ahead of our own. We put allegiance to him and his kingdom ahead of everything else. We seek it first. Now there are about a million and one ways that we can get distracted from this call to seek God's kingdom first. Here in Philippians 1, 12 to 30 though, Paul demonstrates how happiness comes not by, by not letting anything dissuade him, from putting God's kingdom ahead of everything else. This, this section of Philippians, the first chunk of it is, is Paul basically giving an update. He's writing this letter to the Philippians. He's like, hey, so here's what's up with me. Before I get into like, telling you much about like, even Jesus or how to live, like, I'm going to get, tell, give an up, a status update on, on how life is going for me. And it can be really easy to read the Bible flatly sometimes. Like, like in this passage here, like, now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what happened to me was that, no. Like, it's easy to do that, but if we read this and we really think about it, you can almost hear Paul smiling as he writes this stuff. Like, his joy comes through in what he writes. So here, we're going to start off with verses 12 through 14. Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what ha- has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. Now to understand this, we need to back up just a little bit and think about the book of Acts. The book of Acts tells the story of the early church. Like Jesus died, he rose again, he went back into heaven, and he told his followers, like, hey, I want to send my spirit to you, and then you go out and tell people about this. You make disciples of all nations. And that's what the book of Acts is about. It's about the, that message going out and the church being established throughout Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And, and throughout the book of Acts, we see Paul in just about like a 15-year span he goes through something like 35 to 40 cities proclaiming the gospel. Like, he's moving. He's on a clip. He's spreading the good news about Jesus and the kingdom of God. He's healing the sick. He's raising the dead. And now he's under house arrest. He's under house arrest as he writes his book to the Philippians. He's not going out and about. He can't go engage people in the public square. He's not go, he can't go from city to city. It looks like his days of kingdom work were behind him. He's done. He can't go out and preach the gospel anymore. 
But the book of Acts ends with these two verses. These are the last two verses of the book of Acts. Chapter 28, verses 30 and 31. For two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. He proclaimed the gospel of He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Paul put the kingdom first. He didn't care that he was under house arrest. Anyone who would come to him, he rolled out the welcome mat, he put on a pot of coffee, said, hey, come on in, let's talk about Jesus. I can't go, you can come, let's talk. The soldiers who were guarding Paul, I mean, stop and think about this real quick. Roman soldiers, like what's the stereotype of Roman soldier, right? These are some bad dudes. They were trained killers. I bet like sitting there next to one of these guys, potentially even like chained literally to them. It's in the holding a spear, his sword on his side, trained killer. You know, I, I bet that dude, uh, I don't think he really wants to hear about Jesus. I'm just going to sit here. Like, that's an intimidating situation to be in. I'm in jail. I'm under arrest for preaching Jesus. The guard with the sword is sitting next to me. I think we're, I'm, I'm all right. I'm all right. He, he, he didn't come to me. He had to come. He didn't kind of, you know, walk up and, like, want this. So I'm just going to, I'm fine here. But with Paul, that didn't happen. You know that they heard about Jesus. You see, Paul's opponents thought that by arresting him, they would finally shut him down. They would finally shut him up. But the opposite happened. Paul said here in these verses that the whole palace guard knew exactly why he was there. That he was there because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know how many men were in the palace guard? Somewhere in the neighborhood of 10,000. 10,000 men. A whole lot of them, I guarantee you, would never have heard about Jesus if Paul hadn't been arrested. If they hadn't been chained to him. Paul's arrest advanced the gospel. 10,000, that's nuts. But it didn't take, like, think about this. It didn't take 10,000 guards to watch Paul. Like, that's, that's a bit of a waste of resources. So what that means is that as Paul shared with these guards... Some of them believed. Some of them believed, and then they went and told their fellow soldiers. And they went and told their fellow soldiers. 10,000 men heard about Jesus that wouldn't have heard about Jesus otherwise because Paul got arrested. That plan to get rid of Paul by, by having him put in chains, it backfired. It backfired in a big way because while they could put Paul in chains, they could not put the gospel in chains. And Paul would not be quiet. He put the kingdom first no matter where he was because kingdom first, not context. Paul put the kingdom first, not his context. It wasn't about where he was. It was about the kingdom first. As John mentioned, Grace's graduation was yesterday. Congrats, by the way. Warsaw High School's graduation is here in just a couple weeks. And so that whole, like, what's God's will for my life? Like, that question is on the forefront of a lot of people's minds right now. Like, what's God want me to do? Where does he want me to go? How does he want, like, how does he want to use me? And you know what? 
Like that question is big. Like we, we feel that question heavily sometimes. And just for the record, it doesn't only come up at the end of college. Like you'll get it again. But whether you're 18 or 83, I can answer that question for you. I can answer for you what God's will for your life is. Look down. Look down and see where you are. Where has God put you? That's the answer. God's will for you is to put his kingdom first here today. It's not about how, where's God going to use me? God wants to use you now. Like we can get so preoccupied with the future and where God's calling us and where we're going that we forget that God has led us here. He put us here, right here, right now to be doing his kingdom's work. So look down and get started. Yeah, he might call you somewhere else tomorrow and I can't tell you what God's will for you tomorrow is. But for today, in this stage of your life, look down. That's where God has put you to advance his kingdom's purposes. Your job. Work for the kingdom. Yeah, yeah, it, you know, but it's not the job that I know God has for me. I know that out there somewhere, like, he's got this bigger, this better job. It may not be the job that he has for you tomorrow, but it's the job he has for you today. It's the coworkers that he has for you today. Go put his kingdom first. Your neighborhood, your friends, your family, God has put you in their lives for a reason. Put his kingdom first. At school, the people you sit with at lunch, the classes you sit in, the person who sits next to you, that group that you got put in by the teacher for that group project, that team you're on, the choir band that you're a part of, all of those contexts are where God wants you to show what it looks like to be a citizen of heaven. To love others well. To be a light for him. The park you take your kids to. The parents of the other kids on your kids' soccer team, even though they may be annoying and loud and like, you know, they bring that like air horn. God wants you to put his kingdom first in those places to show and share his love. And, and remember, like Paul is in chains here. It's not a comfy spot. It's not a place of prestige. Like why would anyone listen to him? And really, like, I don't know anyone in history who, all things being equal, would say, if I could choose one spot to go back to, if I could choose one time period to live in, one place to be, I would want to be under house arrest in ancient Rome, awaiting trial and my possible execution. That's where I want to go. But Paul wasn't distracted by his context. And, and please don't hear me trivializing actual persecution of, of people being arrested and imprisoned and beaten and martyred for the sake of Jesus. Like, that's a very real thing that people face today all around the world. But my point here is this. Paul, even in non-ideal situations, had the kingdom of God on the forefront of his mind. He didn't sit around moping, feeling sorry for himself, thinking, like, man, if just this one thing were different, if just this one thing were different, then you know, I could really make an impact for God. But my context just doesn't allow it. You know, if we, if we dissect that line of thinking, it's like saying, man, if only God would change this thing, then I could do what God has called me to. But I can't do his will because he hasn't done it yet. Like, like we're literally blaming God for us not 
following his will. Like he's the one keeping us from doing what he's called us to do. We are so tempted to believe that lie. That once everything in my life lines up and everything is as we think it should be, then I can really have an impact for God's kingdom. Paul's modeling here that no context God puts us in is by accident. And that we can approach any situation we're in with a kingdom-first mindset. That team you're on, whether starter or bench warmer, kingdom first. From playing at the park to laying in a hospital bed, kingdom first. From president of the company to lowest rung on the corporate ladder, kingdom first. Work hard for the company that honors God, but don't neglect that ultimately you serve the king of kings, not your boss's boss. In fact, you know, you know, often it's when we're in a place that lacks the prestige, lacks the comfort, lacks what looks like the good life, that we can have the biggest impact for God's kingdom. You know, there's something about a happy guy under house arrest who has an unshakable hope that catches people off guard. It makes him sit there and think, like, wait, how can he be happy? I, I want what he has because there is no reason he should be this joyful and happy right now. I want whatever he has. Great, let me tell you about it. Let me tell you about what I have. Let me tell you about who I have. Let me tell you about who has me. He's a good king. And this is contagious. Verse 14, right? Because of my change, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. Putting the kingdom first is contagious. So you want to be truly happy, like Paul is in this letter? Go into whatever context God has put you in with a kingdom first mindset. And you know, this doesn't have to be complicated. You know, sometimes we, we think of this as a big, grand gesture, big, grand thing. It's not, it doesn't have to be complicated. A, a, couple, a couple stories. Several years ago, my dad retired from teaching. He taught third grade for 30 years. All of us kids were grown up, and we were out of his, hair, out of his house. So he had a bit more time on his hands. And then there was this kid who lived next door. He was about seven or eight. I'm not sure how old he was, but uh, his dad wasn't around. So what did my dad do? Started playing basketball with him in our driveway. Started playing catch with him in the yard. Started talking to him about school. Started talking about how his day was going. This kid would come home from after school and He'd run over to our house and knock on the door. And if my mom came to the door, the door he would li- literally ask, can Mr. Brenneman come out to play? He'd be asking permission for a 60-year-old man to come out and play catch with him. Man, it's showing and sharing the love of Jesus. It's not complicated. It's simple. We just have to have eyes to see it. And, and, and a priority system that says his kingdom first. 
I, I know a woman, and at the age of 95, she would spend all of her time knitting hats and scarves. Day in and day out, all year round, she'd sit in her recliner and knit. She'd end up with a few hundred of these things over the course of a year. And then every last one of them, she'd donate to a local charity that would then hand them out, give them away to people who didn't have hats and scarves for the winter. You know what she did while she knit? She spent a lot of that time praying for the people who were going to wear those hats and scarves. 95 years old, pretty much homebound, but still finding ways of showing and sharing the love of Jesus from her recliner. It doesn't have to be complicated. It doesn't. I'll even give you a starting place this week. I'll give you a starting point. A practical, practical way to put the kingdom of God on display. Think about a context that God has placed you in. One, maybe, maybe especially one that you haven't really thought about as putting the kingdom first and be, as being a kingdom representative in. Think about one of those. And think about the people they've put you in contact with there. All right, you got one in mind? You got one in mind? All right. This week, ask someone, just, just one person, Ask someone there if there's anything you can pray for them about. Ask them if there's something you can pray for them about. And then actually pray for them. Maybe not there, but, but at some point pray for them. Like, talk to God about what is burdening them. And then follow up a couple days later. Ask him how that's going. That's putting the love of Jesus on display. There's your assignment for the week. So first here we see that Paul lets the Philippians know that he's all good under house arrest. That his work for the kingdom can't be bound by Roman chains. And that means his happiness can't either. Because Paul has put the kingdom ahead of his context. And then Paul moves on to talk about another potential distraction that he doesn't fall prey to. Putting credit before the kingdom. Verses 15 through most of verse, verse 18. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of that, I rejoice. What is going on here? All right, so... There were some guys going around preaching the gospel, and, and they're you know, working hard for Jesus, and they keep hearing this, Paul this, and Paul that. And, oh, I'll never forget when Paul said, and oh, Paul's so great. Don't you, don't you think Paul's awesome? And, and they were just like, I'm out here doing the same thing. They just got jealous of Paul. They got, they, they got jealous of how many people respected and loved Paul. So when they heard that Paul had been arrested, 
They, they hatched this plan. They came up, they upped their game. They honed their sermons to get them just perfect. They pulled out all their best jokes. And then they went out to preach Jesus more and more and more and more and more, hoping that the word would get back to Paul in, 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 in his chains, in prison, about how great they were. About how many people were now looking to them as the person who had the biggest spiritual impact on their lives. They're hoping Paul would feel that same frustration, that same jealousy that they had when they heard people say things like, well, well, Paul, man, he was just so instrumental in my walk with Jesus. They wanted Paul to feel the, the jealousy and frustration and, and uh, that they did when they heard that. And you know, like the, the first part of the plan worked. They went out, they preached the gospel, people were responding, and Paul heard about them. He heard about how big of an impact these guys were having while he was stuck in Roman shackles. Paul had a response. Woo! That's awesome! Because Paul put the kingdom first, not credit. Paul was completely unfazed by competition. Why? Because there was no competition. This isn't a game. Like, like, there's no ranking system for first century preachers like we have for golf or tennis or college basketball. Paul, Paul's sitting there like, so wait, wait a second, you think you can make me jealous by preaching Jesus? Like, I'm going to get mad that you're out there leading people to Christ. Okay. You know, it hasn't quite worked yet. Maybe you need to try a little more. Preach Christ a little more, then maybe I'll get jealous. Paul was unfazed. This had to be one of the worst conceived plans ever. I mean, right up there with, you know, thinking that putting Paul in prison would stop him. It completely backfired. Not only did they whiff on making Paul's imprisonment harder, because he's jealous, he rejoiced about it. He was happier because of what they were doing. Paul was dancing his chains. And that's because he wasn't trying to build a following for himself. That was never the goal. He never cared about credit. His whole life was about making a big deal about Jesus, and that was happening, so Paul was all good. So I'm going to let you guys in on a little secret here. Mission Point is not the best church in town. What? Can he say that? Mission Point is not the best church in town. Because there is no best church in town. Imaginary games where churches are in some sort of competition with each other. Like, it's crazy. Like, how would, how would you win? Now, church softball is a different story. But, but when it comes to, like, best church in town, like, how would you win? But this temptation is so easy to fall prey to. We have to realize that a win for a church that loves Jesus is a win for us because it's a win for Jesus. It's a win for his kingdom. And we're all on his team. That's our kingdom. That's the ball we're trying to get down the field, not ours. We want every church that truly loves Jesus to thrive. Period. End of sentence. That's it. And just like Paul, hearing about how other churches are advancing the kingdom of God should move us not to jealousy, but to rejoicing. So you guys want some fuel for rejoicing today?
Here we go. Winona Lake Grace Brethren Church. They just started implementing a plan to go school by school, encouraging each and every teacher in our community. Showing the love of Jesus by encouraging those who work with our kids day in and day out. In that, we rejoice. In these past few months, Community Grace Brethren Church started a group that does evangelism training and then goes out into the community on Saturdays to start conversations with people about the gospel. Christ is being proclaimed, and so we rejoice. Pleasant View Bible Church is in their 20th year of running a t-ball league. And they do a great job with this. This year they have almost 100 kids from all kinds of families and backgrounds playing. That's 100 kids and their siblings and their parents and their grandparents and their neighbor who comes with them going to church to learn about baseball, to have fun, and to hear the gospel. Good work, Pleasant View. In that we rejoice. Christ Come to Church had their annual art gala to raise money for missions a few weeks ago. And in one night, they raised $20,000 to send a family to an unreached people group in Tanzania. This summer, a different family, they're sending a different family to attend a missionary training school in Mexico to get ready to take the gospel to a different unreached people group. That is awesome. In that, we rejoice. Then First Baptist Church is a church of about 100 to 120 people here in town. They had a baptism service just last Sunday and 13... 13 people were baptized at this church of like 100. They are reaching people with the gospel in this community. That is great. And in that we, we rejoice. God's kingdom is being advanced. God's people are showing and sharing his love to our community. Taking the gospel to those who haven't heard about it. That's awesome. That's cause for us to celebrate and rejoice. Not to think... Oh, man, I wish we had thought it. Man, we, I'm sure we could do that better. No. No. Christ is being proclaimed, and so we rejoice. Because it's not about the kingdom of Mission Point. It's about the kingdom of God and putting that first and far ahead of everything else. There's not time or space for sibling rivalry between churches. There is too much work to be done. So let's get to it. And let's rejoice when we see others succeeding in, in, in advancing God's kingdom in our community. So Paul wasn't worried about the context he was in. He wasn't worried about the credit or the competition. He, he, it was about none of that for him. It was about the kingdom first. And then... We come to verse, the end of verse 18 through verse 26, where Paul describes something else that he wouldn't let keep him from seeking God's kingdom first. End of verse 18. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance or my, my salvation. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. And yet, what shall I choose? I don't know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but is necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you 
for your progress and joy in the faith. So that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. Man, there's a ton in there. There's a ton that could be said about those verses, but I just want to focus on a couple things. First, do you hear how uncertain things are for Paul? He has no idea if he's going to be alive or dead next week. No idea. Like, think about how consuming that would be. I would be so preoccupied, wondering, wondering, wondering constantly, like, am I going to live? Am I going to die? Like, I'd be stressed out. I'd be worrying about the pain of what may be coming my way. And so often, like, obviously not in this exact way, but this is kind of how we function. We want assurances about the future before we move. We want to know that nothing bad is going to happen. We want to know that we'll be insulated from negative consequences and pain. And if we don't have certainty about the outcome, we, if, if, the, if the consequences of, of what we may say or do, like if, if you know, we're not sure how it's going to pan out, like we just we wait. We don't move because it could go badly, and we, just, we don't want to take that risk. And so, instead of putting the kingdom first, we put certainty first. But Paul had a completely different paradigm. Kingdom first, not certainty. He said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. As long as I'm alive, I'll represent my king. And and if I die, I'll go to be with my king. That's a win-win. For Paul, it was a win-win. I could be dead tomorrow. I don't know. That'd be good, but I'm alive today, so I'm going to get to work today. Tomorrow has enough troubles of its own. Like that, that'll whatever. God's already there. He's 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 there. But today He has me here, and so I'm not going to let uncertainty about tomorrow change how I act today. Now I'll be honest. This this mindset is one that like I'm not there. I think on my very best day. I might, I might think, like, you know, I, I think I'd be okay. I think I'd be all right if, 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 you know, if God took me now. I think. But Paul, did you hear what he said? Better by far to go be with Jesus. Better by far to go be with the king who loved him and laid his life down for him. I'm not there. And I don't, I don't know what to do with that all the time. Like, I want Jesus to grow my love for him to the point where I'm like, I want to be with you more than anything. And yet, too often, I see the things around me that I love. And if I'm honest, I love them more than I do him. I enjoy where I'm at more than, I guess honestly, more than I think I'll enjoy being with him. 
And so I don't think to die is gain. I think to die is to lose what I have. Not thinking about, no, to die is to gain what he has bought for me with his precious blood. It's to gain union with him. It's to gain, it's to gain Jesus in front of me. You see, Paul had this uncertainty about what came next next week, next month. There was massive amounts of uncertainty about that. But he was certain about one thing, and that made the rest of it irrelevant. He was certain that Jesus Christ was alive. He was certain that if we join him in a death like his, we will be raised in a resurrection like his, and we will be with him. He was certain of what we sang earlier. I believe in the resurrection. I believe we will rise again, for I believe in the name of Jesus. We sang that, and that is what Paul believed so that he could say, to live is Christ and to die is gain. As long as I'm here, his kingdom first. And when he takes me home, hallelujah, praise the Lord. I'm ready. Take me. And Paul models such an unbelievable selflessness here. Like, you read this passage, and next to nothing of it has to do with Paul. Like, his his thought process, right? He's like, man, it'd be better to go be with Jesus, but you know what? You guys, it'd be better for you and your faith if I were still around, so, you know, I'm probably going to, I think I'm going to stay around. Like, he's not thinking like, oh, but I I still want to, I haven't experienced this yet. I still want to go see this place. I still want to... It wasn't a bucket list for Paul. His bucket list was get to Jesus. Kingdom first. Not not bucket list. And so Paul models our Savior by saying like, you know what? I'll do whatever's best. Not my will, yours be done, God. You want to take me home? Take me home. I'm ready. You need me to stay for the good of others, for their faith, that they might know you more. They might rejoice all the more. They might be happier. He says you're for your joy. I'll stay. Whatever you want, God. Your kingdom first. You know, we look at it and we think like, man, this could have gone badly for Paul, though. Like that uncertainty, right? It could have gone badly. And and what if it goes badly for me? But remember where we've been already? Paul gets arrested. That seems bad. And God uses it for his kingdom. People with bad intentions try to make Paul jealous, try to get after him, try to, try to make him frustrated. And it turns out for Paul's rejoicing. In God's kingdom, when we put his kingdom first, anything bad gets flipped to good, eventually. It may take time. We may, we may feel the pain of it, but think of the ultimate expression of this. It seemed bad when Jesus Christ was nailed to that cross. It seemed bad 
when he let out his last breath and he died and they put him in a tomb. But then, God's kingdom won. Our king rose again and that bad turned into the best good this world has ever known. Trust God and put his kingdom first, even when the outcomes are uncertain, even when the consequences may seem bad, because with him, the final outcome is assured. The final outcome is his kingdom will be fully realized, and we will be with him, and we will be like him, and we will reign with him forever. In light of that, the uncertainty about anything just pales in comparison to the certainty we have in our risen Savior. Paul knew it. He believed it to his core. And so he could say, for me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Because I know that my Savior, my King, lives. This whole section is overflowing with Paul's happiness and joy because he loves his risen king and he loves serving his kingdom. And nothing, no uncomfortable context, no desire for credit, no level of uncertainty could keep Paul from putting Jesus and his kingdom first. And then verse 27, Paul turns off of his circumstances, where he's at, and looks to the Philippians. He writes this, Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come to see you or I only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they're being destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For if it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. I want to invite the band out as, as we as I wrap this up here, but that whole section, to paraphrase, is Paul saying this. Whatever happens, you Philippians put his kingdom first too. Don't wait for me. Don't wait for me. I may show up, I may not, I don't know. You get to work. Strive together for his kingdom. And it'll be a struggle sometimes. You'll face resistance. People will push back. Evil doesn't go quietly. I mean, remember, like, I'm writing this from chains. I'm writing this from prison. That may happen to you. But if I can do it, you can too. Because the same king is on the throne. The same spirit is within us. So stand firm in that one spirit. Work together. Work hard. 
And don't be afraid because the king is on your side. And so, kingdom first. It's your turn, Philippians. It's your turn. Here's the thing. The Philippians aren't here. Kingdom first. It's our turn. It's our turn. God has put us here in this town. He's put us here in this county. He's put us here on this planet to make his kingdom known. It's our turn. We can't drop the baton. We have a job to do. And it takes putting his kingdom ahead of everything else. It's seeking first his kingdom, not mine. It's our turn to see our neighborhoods, our workplaces, our schools, our families, our friends, as places where God wants us to build his kingdom. It's our turn to strive together as one to show and share the love of Jesus. Let that be our commitment today. That we as a church family are not content to pursue the things of this world, to get distracted by what context we're in, or get distracted by uncertainty, or get distracted by wanting credit or a name to be known, but rather we commit to putting his kingdom first. we commit to declaring his goodness to demonstrating his generosity we commit to putting him before all 